Hey, 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 welcome to the Taylor Talks. Today, we have the amazing Kimberly Valerie on the show. She is a true rags to riches story, but her journey was a little different than anyone else's. I mean, like most of us, but her drug of choice, not what you're thinking. Stick around as we dive into this amazing topic and really get into the nitty gritty of what got her where she is, what she learned, some warning signs for people maybe going through the same thing. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. It was a blast to record. And after the show, listen for instructions on where to find a super fun giveaway. Hey, 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 welcome to the Taylor Talks. I am so, so, so honored to be sitting here with the beautiful Kim. And she is a wealth and leadership mentor. You already just heard her amazing bio and who she is. So let's dive in the drug of choice. And no, we're not talking about heroin. <laughs> it sure feels like it in my veins, though. <laughs> right? Not that I would know. I've never done heroin. But <laughs> I haven't done Thank either. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yes, my drug of choice. I love this conversation. So we're here for hard topics, hard conversations. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Let's dive right in. So we, in your bio and when we were chatting, your drug of choice was work. It was, yes. Oh my gosh. I, you know, high achieve. well, those were labels. Being a high achiever was a label somebody put on me and then I grabbed it. But I loved achievements. I loved goals. I loved the, but I didn't connect all of that to, anything destructive. I kind of, one of the phrases I use is as I, as I started to get, and I'll go backwards to to share some where Mm. I came from, but as I started to get this revelation and this understanding, it was like, these were my trauma responses. I was fueled by trauma and I was rewarded by society. And what was happening through the course of 30 years is all of the accolades, all of the successes, all of the things that, you know, people look to do in their lives, all the things that motivated me, all that kind of stuff, it really was fueled by trauma. And as much as I did not want to acknowledge that. And the, the weird thing is because society rewards it with, you know, promotions, money, accolades, reputation, adoration, whatever, all that shit. It's like, it's a positive thing, right? My trauma was not being lived out the way society typically sees it. It was not being lived out in a self-destructive. It was self-destructive, but it did not appear that way. So I wasn't, and I haven't even had very many toxic relationships with family members, friends, or intimate partners, which is also very bizarre, right? Because usually this is where you see trauma working the, itself out right you mean or you not. didn't fit in the mold of what right. a textbook said we should be right <laughs> and this was the thing so I live my life the majority of my life with this I would call it this disbelief but it was a state of denial like 100% denial this is why I call it kind of a drug of choice because it was a choice yes but there's a, a denial phase kind of the intervention the healing and then the awakening kind of is all the different pieces. But of course, you don't see that till, the, till after. Oh, never. We never see it till we're on the other side of it, right? Right. So let's start with the trauma, right? Because okay. I don't think, I don't think, and I, I mean, as a trauma specialist, I see this every single day with clients, right? Is the trauma responses that people are living in and how that dictates the decisions that they're making, what they're doing. It's like a giant filter over their lives, that is affecting them. Right. So I know you said you're going to like, we're going to be vulnerable and dig here. So let's go to your childhood. Where did this all start? So I was, you know, and this is the thing, right. You kind of roll your eyes. It's like, Oh yeah. Childhood trauma. But I mean, the, the reality is whatever's going on in your life, it starts in childhood, maybe and even before and carries over. So uh, as cliche as it is, I was uh, born to a very young mom. Um, I was, I'm a twin, so we were her firstborn. Uh, she was 18, nine, 18 when she got pregnant, 19. Uh, by the time she was 22, I think there was five of us. And so wow. we were born into an environment, and I was born, my siblings and I, all of us, were born into a very chaotic, unstable home life to parents who were not prepared in any way, shape, or form to provide 
structure, security, stability, all that kind of stuff. So our beginning was very chaotic. We moved a lot. There was lots of addictions with my parents, domestic abuse, just all of that kind of feel, if you will. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, I still, we still kind of say to my mom every now and then, like, how did you move so much? Moving's expensive. And there was five of us and we were poor. We were poor, dirt poor. Nobody worked, right? They all just lived off welfare back then or whatever scam they could, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we moved a lot. We, so we didn't have a lot of stability. And then my mom, my father left. Of course, that relationship didn't last long. And then my mom remarried and the fellow she remarried was alcoholic as well. But what happened is my, my mom ended up leaving us. So five of us, well, four of us cuz one of our one of my siblings was actually given away for adoption like you would give a kitten to a neighbor. Oh wow. Yeah, like cuz so there's a whole different level of trauma because there's like fear of abandonment and rejection and what if what if we're the next one? There's yes, yeah, so there's five of us and then there's four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then my mom leaves. She's you know, she's struggling with all of her own shit, right? She has a father that died when she's young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has her own stories. She's struggling, struggling with uh, addiction. She leaves and leaves us with my stepfather, who, of course, now one of my siblings is his child. Okay, so he okay. stays to take care of this little group of kids, a little litter of kittens. But he's heartbroken because he's loved my mom and he's an alcoholic, but he, he does have a job. So he spends his days working and his nights drinking because his wife left him with this, yeah. you know, gang or litter of kids. And he's heartbroken and he's, again, his own shit, right? And the leaving the, the four of us to our own, yeah. Anyway, my sister, my youngest sister, she has like PTSD from our childhood, just from the, oh. from the siblings and having no parents. 100%. Yeah. I say that kind of sure. tongue in cheek, but it is very serious. Anyway, so my mom returns about a year later. Now I'm about 12. My mom returns and when she returns, my stepfather leaves and my mom takes her rightful place as matriarch of the family. Now, remember, you know, she's been kind of gone both emotionally and physically for quite some time. She shows back up and she brings this guy with her. And I'm 12 and I've been, I've been the mom. I've been, this is my gang now. These are my kids, right? Yeah. And so she shows up and tries to exert her authority and right in the castle. And of course, I'm 12, 13. Well, I was 12. And her boyfriend doesn't like me. And he, well, first he wants to, he wants me to drug deal for him. I tell him to go pound sand. You know, there's all, then he tries to make some sexual advances at me. I get a little physical with him. I try to tell my mom, she doesn't believe any of it. You know, this relationship between him and I became very strained. The relationship between my mother and I was strained. And one night in the middle of the night while I was sleeping, and this is a bit of a kind of trigger warning for anybody that's listening, because it is very graphic, what I'm about to share. And I do share the graphics of it for a reason. So in the middle of the night, I was dead asleep with my sister and my brother. Now there was only three of us remained in my family home because my other brother was a juvenile delinquent and was now in, you know, a youth detention center. So there's three of us remaining in the home. And in the middle of the night, my mom's boyfriend, my mom and him had come back home. They had both been intoxicated. He dragged me out of bed in the middle of the night and beat me almost to death. And my sister and my brother were in the bedroom my brother was trying to keep my sister quiet so that, because she's younger, right? The, the one sister that was raised with us, she's five years younger. My mom was in the kitchen. Well, and the only, the two things that I remember, so the piece about my brother keeping my sister quiet, that was what my siblings told me. I don't have any recollection of that. Yeah. Um, I had uh, suffered severe head injuries. I was in a coma. My mother, after the fact, was the one to tell me that she saved my life by calling an ambulance. That's what actually saved my life in that moment. And so, as you can imagine, so I'm 13 years old. I've had suffered a severe head injuries from a severe beating. Of course, they're not going to let me back home, right? The authorities get called. I'm in the hospital for blah, blah, blah. But they don't take my sister or my brother away. (laughs) Go figure. Just me. Gotta love the system. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets charged. They just take me and put me in foster care. And that's really where kind of the heart, the heart of the trauma starts being born in an extremely chaotic environment, but the Mm. actual trauma of being dragged out of my sleep in the middle of the night. And then of course, Mm -hmm. badly beaten. And my mom is still alive. She's 72 or something. She has dementia. And 
it was just a few weeks ago I had asked her, I said, mom, cause I've asked her this over the years, you know, what was your, what was going on for you when you're watching Bob, the guy, sorry, I shouldn't say it. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, I call him the monster. <laughs> um, when you're watching yeah. him beat me up, like what, what was going through your mind? And she said, honestly, Kimberly, from the moment I brought him home, I knew he was going to kill you one day. And she says this still in her seventies with dementia. And remember, she said that that's why she wow. feels she saved my life that day. So do you see the perspective difference? She's thinking, that wild. Yeah, she's thinking she saved my life because she said, I knew in my gut that he was going to kill you. And he did murder our neighbor and went on to murder an old lady. Like he is a monster, like hands yeah. down. So that's, you know, that's the kind of big trauma. So connecting that to my drug of choice, right? And mm-hmm. so... That's my big teeth. That's one of the big teeth. There's many things that I was going to say when we, when we're raised with a childhood like that, I love you and I both like we've chatted before when you have the level of trauma that some of us have had in our lives, we glaze things. Like we talk through things in the funniest way, like, Oh, and then this happened and then this happened. And it's like, because it's so normal for us. Yeah, but people are like, <gasps> and so I have oh, 100%. I have come to now say I'm gonna this is gonna be a bit of a trigger warning because I'm gonna get graphic about what happened. Yeah. And and I don't do it for theatrics, I do it so that people really can can see the or feel the context of what life was like. Uh, yeah. and even from my mom's perspective, right? Like these are decisions that she has to live with her entire life. You know, I had to deal with the results of it, but she has to mm-hmm. deal with the fact that she was responsible for us. And these were choices she made. Right? And that, that to me, you know, when I had my forgiveness moment with my mom in my 20s, like true, true forgiveness, that's what probably broke my heart the most, right? I, you know, I have all my own shit to go through because of the result of these choices. But as a mother, she had to, has to live with that. And so that's her ghost, right? Anyway. So can I just say though, really quick, congrats on having that moment and being able to see that perspective. Cause that is one of the most powerful things ever when you've gone through trauma is to be able to see the perspective of the other characters in the play. Isn't that the truth though? I I still remember it like it was yesterday. That doesn't, you know, the forgiveness and being able and that feeling in me, because up until that point in my twenties, I was always mad at her for not being the mom that she should have been right that you need right yeah like even yeah. in the basics never mind you know all the other <laughs> you know all the other ways i glamorized yeah. what having a mom you know my na- my best friend's mom right like she's like the perfect mom cooking in the kitchen whatever that was when i was a kid you know those things whatever my mom wasn't you know my girlfriend's mom was yeah. and that's what i thought a mom should be all those things right so anyway the point being is, so then I'm in care, foster care, and it's about a year in or whatever. And we go to court because you have to go to court every so often. Yeah. This was my first hit. This is what I describe as my first hit. Okay. So I'm in the courthouse, in the courtroom, and my social worker says to the judge, oh, you know, this is Kim, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And look at her report card. She's such a great student. Everybody, all the teachers, love her. Like she, he started going on about me to the judge. And I, I remember standing there awkward, like feeling really awkward, like, what, what are you doing? And because remember, my whole experience up till this time, and I also had a um, teenage experience right before I was beaten up, where, so I'm part of my uh, cult, ethnic culture, I'm part Native Indian, and I lived on reserve, mm-hmm. and there was a group of Native girls, teens, who looked, physically looked Native, whereas I never did, I was always blonde hair, blue eyed, yeah. uh, they beat the shit out of me. So like probably maybe six months before the actual big. So I have these, I've had these experiences that I don't belong, you know, both with my family and my peers. And, you know, I don't want any attention on me because it has never been good. And so I'm standing in the courtroom feeling all like weird and awkward. And I say to my social worker, why are you saying that? Like, I kind of like, why are you saying that? And he says, because the judge never very rarely does the judge get to see good things in the system. So then the judge starts commenting, right? Giving me accolades. And then I remember literally feeling proud. Somebody in my life finally is acknowledging me for good things. They're seeing Mm -hmm. you. And that's when the first hit, that was my first hit. 
really, right? And so it started to climb from there. And the interesting thing it was, is by the time I was 17 in grade 12, I was the most popular person at school. People, right? It was like the more was great at school and great socially and all the more people attracted to me. And the, it was like, oh, she's doing well. It got associated with doing well. So even though I had ABC or had come from XYZ, she's doing well. <laughs> I was going to say from zero to 14 was hell. <laughs> but man, can I get an A plus on a report card? Well, right. And so this became, yeah. and this just really followed me. Not I wouldn't say deliberately or intentionally because I had some crashes and burns as a young adult, you know, 17, 18 and, oh, and, and yeah. things like that. But I had that, like, I, I I'm going to, I'm going to do that next thing that people can't, don't think I can do, or I'm going to do that thing. That's maybe, I, I mean, my first job as a young adult was at a bank. I mean, I came from places where my mom ripped off banks. Right. So for me to work in a bank, I was like, this is prestigious. And so this became, this became the MO and it just one thing after another. So with that drug of choice, because we are so raised this way. Mm-hmm. Productive. Right? It's there's, but it's productive in all areas, right? So you have these you have people on social media where it's like, oh, I got a like, oh, I got a comment. Oh, okay. I'm good. My numbers, my whatever, right? Like it's the, it's those hits. Yeah. It literally is like an addiction. It's a little dopamine hit. It totally it's, is. It's this wild dopamine hit. Oh, you lost weight. Oh, okay. Now you have more worth. Mm. Oh, you did this. Now you have more mm -hmm. worth. Oh, you got a promotion. Oh, we're going to celebrate yeah. you. Not for being an amazing human, not for volunteering or donating or, or just being a good person. Just being, just because. Just being a, just being alive. Just because you're, you're a human being. Yeah. Right. And you've survived up until now. Yeah. Right. But it's, we're so attached to that. So when society is celebrating that so hard and you're pushing so hard, so you went on to be a social worker, you went on to get all kinds of schooling and degrees and all these things. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I got married and my husband had three kids. I had one, I got married and I tackled our family like, like a business. My husband and I did, right? I mean, we have four kids, yeah. blended family, all everybody's got everybody's bringing their trauma into it everybody's got stuff <laughs> abandonment totally. all that some of us are aware of it uh, you know it's just a kind of mess I spent yep. 10 years committed to my family and doing you know him and I sorting out who who's going to take care of what while he was blazing his trail in his business he took the financial burden on right working 90 100 hours a week I mean we were broke we were broke as fuck like my daughter to this day at 36 is stuck in a money story from a situation we had when she was eight. Like we, we were wow. broke, broke, broke. I know I, I have yeah. paid for her therapy on it too, just so you know, uh, because it caused <laughs> it. But it, uh, anyway, the point being is that I, I attacked that. So for 10 years, I just immersed myself in motherhood and being a great leader in our home and working through my shit. Cause as we all know, kids bring up all of our traumas and triggers. All and that's it. where myself, that's where my personal growth started. Right. Because you're, you're forced to, at least I felt compelled to re react to this, this monster that was erupting in me because of my children's behavior. Like if they weren't behaving or if their behavior triggered me, then I was like, why am I behaving? You know? And so that's where my personal growth mm -hmm. really started. And then by the time they, they became teens, preteens, kind of my son, uh, his biological father passed away unexpectedly when he was very young. And so he started to go spend summers away with his dad's side of the family my daughters were now preteens, so they were had their own life and I found myself with no time like all kinds of time and nothing to do because my and so this is when I went into social work this is when I started to now jump into the field I came from a place of trauma I came from a social worker that helped me this totally aligned and this is really where the amazing or the power of your subconscious and the power of conditioning creating the filter for which you view the world, this, this just blows me away. So I go into social work school, but I'm like, I'm not going to work in child welfare. No way, right? I grew no. up in that. I'm not working in it. But you have to do a stint in there as a student, at least back then, mm -hmm. because a lot of the, the populations that you end up working with in a so, as a social worker end up having some kind of interaction, quite likely, with a government agency. So I go into this 
the student practicum for six weeks, Don, it fits me like a glove. It is like I was born for the job. The bosses are like, wow, <laughs> you're a student. You belong here. We have a spot for you. You see this hit again. Bingo, right? You belong here. Look at how good you are. But the funny thing is I felt it. I was like, I am fucking good at this. And I excelled in that environment for 15 years. It, I got promotions. I got accolades. I got reputation. I had great work relationships with colleagues. It was the time of my life. I'm, I felt unstoppable. Why, right? And people would be like, you're really, you're, you manage the stress well. You know, again, associate. Gotta love those statements. Right? Like they're associated. <laughs> they don't see this destructive, externally destructive thing. So yeah. in all of that, there is something on the inside of me through all of these years. There's something on the inside of me. I would just, I used to run all the time. I am not, I do not, for those that can't see me, I, I do not have a runner's body, quote unquote. I mean, I know, yes, we all do because we all run but I'm not like designed for running. I'm designed for weightlifting. I am short and strong, right? And but I used to run, I used to run all the time and people would say like, why? And I'm not even good at it. Like I don't do it fast or anything like that. And people would say, why do you run? And I, this would be my answer. And as a trauma therapist, you'll get this right away. My answer in my denial phase, of course, was it was be the only way I could actually remove the built up physiological energy that builds in me in a day. That would be the only way that I could get rid of that. No matter that I was, you know, working full time, raising kids, doing all those other things, owning businesses, I still had yeah. to run in order to feel, uh, in order to... Is it safe to say safe in your own head? But I didn't, but I didn't know it was that. It was in order no. to sleep at night. Totally. But what I came to, so, so right. So this, and I, I, I still remember telling people that, oh, I run because of the physical, physiological energy that builds up in me in a day. It's the only way to spend it. I need the release. Yes. It's the only way for me to get that physical release. Yes. I hear it all the time. Right. Yeah. This is a trauma response, but I couldn't, I didn't 100%. know this. I worked in trauma. I lived in trauma. I worked in trauma. I was trauma informed. I had forgiven my mother. I was in relationship with all my family members. I was financially successful, relationally successful. Why would I think that I'm struggling with trauma or unmet needs? Okay, so here's where I'm going to pause you. People listening to this, pay attention to this. It's not just the person with the eating disorder. It's not just the person who's attempting suicide. It's not just the person who's the closet alcoholic. It's not something that you can easily see from the oh outside God, so and the true. most trauma informed people on the planet have no idea what is going on half the time with this the trauma responses we have in our day-to-day life are so much bigger than we realize like so much and so when you said the word safe before you said i ran to feel safe this is the thing even now today many years later the word safe to me does not I have no connection to the word feeling safe or unsafe. And I think that for me was where my denial was. I didn't connect with that word. I grew up in an environment that was constantly unsafe, but it became my normal. So I always felt safe. Oh, 100%. Even though I experienced unsafe moments, I still had a, this became my level of my nervous system kind of adjusted its like (laughs) alerts, right? Danger, danger. It, It was numb to it. So I didn't, oh, I couldn't, Absolutely. I mean, I could sit in a room with gang members and I'm taking their children and they're threatening to kill me. And I did not ever feel like I was at, in danger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and when I was just talking to this with my girlfriend yesterday about this, I said, that should be a, a clue <laughs> that something <laughs> you would off. think you're like red flag, <laughs> red flag. Right? <laughs> like if I'm not feeling a sense of danger. So this was the discovery for me. Yeah. So I'm in a place of denial. I'm coming up 50. I have it all basically by the world standards and even my own by that, right? I'm highly educated, very successful. I own a couple of businesses. I've left now my career as a social worker. We're moving into the entrepreneurial space. My husband's been an entrepreneur his own, our entire life. We travel when we want, where we want. I got, I think at that point I have five grandchildren. Like, I mean. You're killing fuck it. Yeah. Right. In the, in the, in the views of anybody and everybody around you, you were killing And all the while people like, you know, my bestie, a few, you know, hippies, 
would say to me, like, you really should try meditation. And I'd be like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> right. And I'll just go for another right. I'm I don't understand what sitting still has to do with anything. I don't understand. And it, you know, yeah. oh my gosh. I'm it's just so adorable when we're in the denial phase in some ways. Right. It's my favorite. I see it every day. With right. Clients. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're so cute. Just wait till you have your eye opening moment. Okay. Yeah. So then I'm 50. I, something's off. I'm not feeling well. Yada, yada, yada. I go to series of events with doctors, natural, well, natural path, because I'm not really a Western medicine kind of girl. And we find out that I have breast cancer. And so at 50 years old, I get diagnosed with breast cancer. And that fucking laid me out. Because now I like physically couldn't actually, I was training for an Ironman, running two businesses, traveling. I couldn't do any of it. Everything had to be, I had to, I mean, I spent 15 years in crisis management. So, you know, figuring out how to handle all those things was fine. But the fact that I couldn't actually do them was the problem because. So getting diagnosed with the cancer, having that moment, getting knocked on your ass, all of those pieces, where did your head go in that? You know, at first it wasn't a why me. I've never really got to like, oh my God, why me? I was like, well, you're not a victim. Yeah. No, you're not. I can't be a victim. Well, no, that's like, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is in that hyper level of control Mm -hmm. to manage and handle your mental headspace when you've had that level of trauma, a lot of people, it's like a giant fuck no to being a victim. Like they will not. Which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to slow down when we get sick or slow down when those things happen because there's almost like a transactional love aspect to it of like, but I have to perform I have to show up. I have to work this hard. I have to hit these deadlines. I have to have this social money in my bank account, hit these goals, whatever it is, to be worthy, to be enough, to be loved. But at that point, I didn't even have that kind of connection to it. I didn't, I never ever thought I needed to have X amount of money or I needed to have this kind of love or attention. That's how much in denial I was. I didn't realize that I was pursuing in like superstar denial. So you like a plus even in your denial. (laughs) Thought of it like that, but yes, like I wasn't even like, it wasn't, this is, this is the thing is I've never even like be like, Oh, I want, I want a million dollars. I want a hundred dollars. I want, you know, this, I I never, Iron Man's yes. Physical um, things would be more like uh, specific goals. It would just be like, oh, I think that sounds cool to do. I'm going to go try to do that kind of thing, right? And so it was like, I didn't even know that I was seeking it. That's what I mean. Like, that's how denial I was, in denial I was. And when people were trying to tell me that I needed to slow down, connect with my breath, you know, things like that, I was like, you guys are all just jealous. You're just lazy. <laughs> that's what my lungs are for. <laughs> they make me breathe. <laughs> all right? You're just lazy. I'm just, you're just made feel bad when you're around me because you're not doing so much or whatever it was just it was obtuse I know that now I see that now but (laughs) it was that's what happens when you're so Um, in denial welcome you are everybody else walking around right you're just so in denial so many people gosh it's like I laugh every now and then my best friend she's like yeah it was kind of like I could see the train wreck coming but I tried everything I could to stop it anyway so the process of going through treatment and recovery really fucks you up as you know you've been through your own um hell and back with different health scares and that really started to change things for me slowly though it wasn't um it wasn't an about face and I remember one of my dear friends is a clinical social worker who specializes in trauma uh counseling she was sitting with me after my um, mastectomy and I remember saying like I don't understand I don't understand, like people go through cancer and have these aha moments and they're all like, oh, it's such a beautiful journey and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't fucking get it. My life was great. I don't understand. What is going to get better? And she's so patient and kind. And she's like, well, you know, everybody's journey is on a different track. Your aha moment might come later. It might, you know, different time, you know, you know, very. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I need it now because you know, kind of what's the lesson here, right? Because that's kind of how I had lived most of those, any of those kind of like rough patches that I went through over the years, you know, was always like, hey, what's the lesson, the pivot thing, right? What's the lesson? What do I need to learn so I can keep moving? I don't sit and shit for too long, right? (laughs) I'm I'm the same. (laughs) And then when I got diagnosed with cancer, I, the kids came over, everybody, I said, we got three days. I still did that. Three days. We can live in this shit for three days, but then it's time to make a plan. Mine's always 47 minutes. (laughs) 
I'm going to have the world's biggest pity party. Like I'm going to whine and cry and wail and probably in a hot bath with a bucket of ice cream or something like, but like, I'm going to set a timer, like 47 minutes. This is going to be fucking dramatic. I love it. So random 47 minutes. It's like, (laughs) it came out of a hard time one time where my husband actually said to me, he was like, He's like, okay. He's like, yes, this is happening. Yes, this is horrible. But how long are you going to live in it for? And I was like, as long as I want. And he's like, well, you're in a hot tub and the bath water is going to get real cold soon. He's like, you have an hour or something or 15 minutes. And we ended up like negotiating and compromising on 47 minutes. And it's been the joke for 20 years. That's beautiful. Mine was three days. Although I think 47 minutes is better because in three days when you're wallowing, you can spend a lot of money. You can spend a lot of money. And you can spend a lot of eat money. Eat a lot of carbs. But you can get, and you can get real, <laughs> real dark. dark. Yeah, real dark. Like I've always said that to people. Like day one, I'm fine. Day two of wallowing, I'm like, oh boy, because yeah. if I hit day three, I'm out for a yeah. week. Yeah, it, 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 day three is. I don't think I lasted. I think my daughter lasted three days, but I don't think I did because it was actually at one point. There, my husband, he's like, "Okay, I know this is like it's devastating for all of us, but we still have to pay the visa bill. You know that." <laughs> online shopping for 12 48 hours like we can't go bankrupt <laughs> because you're emotionally yeah. shopping um so uh yeah even in that it was like so i can't sit shit anyway so the trip through cancer has been five years i'm coming up five years but this is where the real learning came it's over the course and very slowly of five years and this is yeah. the what started as i started okay i gotta just back this up my first appointment so as i went through cancer treatment and try to figure out what I can do to be healthy, right? To reduce mm-hmm. uh, relapse, yeah. that's a, to reduce all of that, the re- uh, reoccurrence, all that kind of stuff. I started to get into health and food and I started to understand cellular energy and the cells of our actual physical body. So I went to see an acupuncture and I saw Vanessa V, sorry, uh, the urban witch. Yeah. And first time I met her and where I'm in a room and she says to me, she's doing all this stuff, whatever. And she goes, tell me about, she goes, why you're here? And I said, well, I just want to make sure all my cells are like as healthy as they can be for like, you know, yeah. reducing cancer. Yet, Not doing this again. Right. Not doing this again. <laughs> I got to do what I can. And she yeah. said, okay. And then she lies me down the table. She does some things. And she says, tell me what happened when you were 13. And I said, oh, and I start to, I, this is what I did. Oh yeah. I was beaten up, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, no, no, no. Tell me about your sister. And nobody's ever, no, nobody's ever like talked or asked questions about the impact Okay, of that event when I was 13. And I said, oh, well, what about her? And she goes, well, because well, as a twin, well, my twin is my brother, but he's older. My sister okay, okay. that was raised with us is five years younger. And she was my sidekick, right? Up until yeah. I was 13. Okay. And she said, tell me what happened with her. And I said, oh, well, she stayed at my, she stayed with my, my mom and the monster. Uh, after, because I had said something about being beaten up, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, Hmm. And she goes like that. Hmm. And in an instant, my unconscious mind opened something up to me that I'd never connected. So one of the things that happened when I was beaten up and recovered and in my foster home, and I knew this story because my sister and I had talked about the story over the years, but it was like periodically because the stuff doesn't come up regularly, right? What had happened is when I was in my foster home and I was fully recovered, I was terrified for my sister because I had been almost killed by this guy that was still in the home. So I had, oh, I had actually sure. gone to her school and stolen her and brought her to my foster home when oh, I was 13. Oh my goodness. Of course, you cannot allowed to raise your siblings at 13. The police were called. No. She was returned home to my yeah. mom. <laughs> so I'm laying on the table. Now I'm 50. I'm laying on the table, 51, laying on the table. And this random acupuncturist asked me what happened with my sister when I was 13. And in an instant, my subconscious opened up to me the reason why that job at child welfare fit me like a fucking glove is because I needed to save my sister I spent 15 years trying to complete that loop trying to complete that pattern but I was so unaware of it it was so ingrained and so part of the filter that I lived my life that I didn't even it's like the color of my skin the color of my eyes you don't even notice it totally and in that moment, when I had that, this acupuncturist had no idea. Okay. This was all going on inside my head, my subconscious. It was like, I was re- ready. It was like, I was finally ready to see how powerful our body absorbs information, creates our reality and says then, 
This is how you made decisions through your whole life out of this lens. And it was so powerful to me in that split second, not only because of the sister thing. So you can bet when I phoned her and told her that she was bawling because her and I have had many fights over the years. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever doubted I loved you, sissy? You need to know that I spent my whole career (laughs) trying to save you. You know what I mean? But that's why I was so good at that job. That's where I started to recognize it was because of the need from my trauma, right? It Mm -hmm. needed to complete that loop of saving my child, my sister. It needed to make sure she was safe. I was safe. It Everything I did as an adult or from a kid from that moment to even now, my nervous system filters everything based on being a protective factor, right? Because, and so that, that was the skew. So that's how I saw the world. That's just, and then I realized, wow, Imagine what decisions I would have made in my life had that filter not been there and I had a different filter. And then I started to explore that even more more and more. And so I started to unpack my how my trauma affected me. And that's when I realized it's these unmet needs of being seen, of being safe, of being secure, Mm -hmm. valued, all those things that we get as children. Those are the pillars to our developmental phases, right? All those things were missing and you know, other things were put in there, this became, that became the driver, my addiction to fill all those unmet needs. And it is actually my nervous system. So this is what I connect with now. And this is what I really would like your listeners to really connect to. If the words stress and trauma aren't connecting for them, it's the nervous system regulation. When I started to think of my nervous system and regulating my nervous system, because my physical health was compromised. And one of the things that I learned is that your nervous system needs to recover in order for you to have health. Okay. Physically. Oh, right. Uh, absolutely. And the only way to yeah. do that is to actually drop your energy, right? Drop your guard to actually mm-hmm. let that nervous system. And you can't do that. If your eyes are open, if your ears are always going, if you're always scanning mm-hmm. your nervous system doesn't ever fucking shut down. Right. So, oh, you're preaching the choir. I had a brain aneurysm at 17 and the doctors are like, well, what about this? Are you on birth control? Was she in an accident? Was she hit in the head? What's going on? And it was like, no, it's actually just stress. Right. Which people roll from trauma. It's your nervous system has, it cannot recover It has no downtime. It's like a car stuck on RPM. And so for me, the last few years has been about really understanding my nervous, how my nervous system responds to the external factors of the world. What that means to me based on my own experiences, trauma, conditioning, all that, and how I have taken, because that need to be a high performer and achiever. I still have that. I still have that craving, right? But Every time I get back into that energetic state, and I don't mean like, oh, all like, you know, holy spiritual <laughs> energy state. I mean, no, I mean like in that high, it's like a tension state in the nervous system. Every time I get there, yeah. something will happen. And whether it's I throw my back out, like stupid stuff, right? Either my back goes or something doesn't go right. Like something will happen to bring me back. And it's like, no, 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 no right? I crave all this stuff still. So because that's how I lived my life for 30 years, 40 years, right? So the craving is still there because that was my personality. But now it's like, so now I talk to people, I'm like, how can we turn these high performing, overachieving, goal crushing people? How can you change the fuel? Let's look at the fuel you're using for those things and see how you can change those things and still experience great success. Doesn't mean, totally. I talk often to clients about when things have happened like that, where, right, like the big traumas, when something like that has happened, and I mean, I'm not even talking a trauma in terms of like, rape or abuse, or even beaten or things like that. Trauma being anytime your nervous system was jarred, Mm -hmm. those moments in your life that you feel like you got hot iron branded, that are stuck, right? We often go to a place of like, we have to pay penance for them. Mm -hmm out of like guilt or shame or like your behavior in it, your actions in it, what was taken from you, how it affected yeah. people around you. Right. So 
tell me if I'm wrong, but a piece of that 13 year old that got beat, right? It goes to a place of like, I have to protect and save my sister. But now like, how have I hurt the people in my life? Because I was taken away and I ended up in foster care and I ended up there. So now I have to pay penance for that for the rest of my life. Almost a path is like imaginary debt that's owed to everybody around you for what happened. I remember feeling so much of that for the things that had happened in my life for like my siblings didn't get a normal childhood because of me. My siblings didn't get you know, the relationships with aunts and uncles because of the abuse I dealt with stopped those trips to go uh, visit that entire portion of the family. You know, that's, I never, that's not been a perspective I have held, but that's interesting. That's a very interesting point of view because my siblings and I were so all disengaged from our parent. Like we, we were all scattered. One was given away. One was in youth detention. I got in foster. Like, do you know what I mean? Like totally none of us even consider that, that perspective. That's interesting. It's just, it's a totally different way to look at it. And so when I'm talking to clients often, I'll be like, what would life look like if you didn't owe anything anymore? If you didn't owe a debt mm -hmm. to anybody, if you didn't have to hold that, what could life look like? Because a lot of those decisions, they weren't ours. No, Having a brain aneurysm at 17 was not my choice. I did not wake up in the morning and be like, see, I'm bored. What am I doing around five or six today? Yeah, Yeah. Right? But there was still the comments that get made about like the financial burden Mm. on the family. And, you know, my dad lost his job in the middle of it all. And so your, your, your situation brought the, brought a bunch of stuff to the family. Totally. Whereas my family, it was like kids just disappeared and nobody asked questions. Right. But we have this piece of us that like so many people, like we hold that. You know, I, when I look back, I see what I see is when my daughters were teens. So this need, this filter that I had before I understood yeah. the filter, it, safety and ensuring like controlling people's safety that were close to me, i.e. my sister mm-hmm. or anybody that represented that. So as my daughters mm-hmm. became teens, you can just imagine as they start to, Oh my gosh, you <laughs> must've been a very fun, protective mom. It was horrible. It was, it was absolutely horrible. I was so controlling and I still talk about this with my oldest daughter. Of course, the oldest one always, you know, kind of gets the worst of it, if you will. But we, uh, you know, I talked to her, we talk openly about it. We had some very nasty moments and some very uh, pivotal conflicts that changed the trajectory of her life even. Because, but it was really all grounded and rooted in this need to protect, right? And uh, it's only been in the last five years that I've been able to have that distance enough to see that and healing and understanding and also Mm -hmm. to go back to her. Because even today, I will still sometimes question and judge her as a parent on safety of her kids, Wow. Because that'd be right. And I'll be like, I need to step back. She's the parent, right? Like, um, because those things become so ingrained in you. They just really do. But uh, definitely, you know, there are the parenting piece with uh, teens. It wasn't so much with my, with boys, with my son, especially. He was fairly, I think (laughs) he was fairly well uh, regulated. He took care of himself basically. And so that, that's the, that's the story in our family though. Funny that you say that he's always like, like the girls took up so much attention Mm -hmm. because of how I responded. And my husband was busy working. Totally, Like he did his best he can, but he's like supporting a family, right? He's, he's the one um, blazing the trail and making the money. And so anyway, there, there is definitely some shrapnel, some that happens because of that. Oh, and there always yeah. is. So if you were to give like a piece of advice, a word of advice, warning, something of support for someone listening who's like, hey, I'm that overachiever. I'm that person. What would you say? I would say this. The first thing I want you to hear yourself, if you just say that's just how I am or that's just my personality, then I want, I would, I would encourage you to start being curious about why that's your personality. Start being curious why. 
because that's what we say to ourselves. When I'm in the when I was in the denial phase, it's like that's just the way I am. Sorry if sorry yes. if you're not that way, but that's the way I am, right? And so asking those questions, if you hear yourself saying that to someone, that's just the way I am, or I can't slow down, I can't meditate, and I'm not telling somebody to meditate. I feel like to go from a high performer, somebody that's in denial like that, to meditation, that's too. It's like a cold. It's way too it's far of a too jump. far of a jump in. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just saying like, those are the, la- that's the language. If you're using that language, if you recognize mm-hmm. those language, start getting curious as to what's fueling that. Where is that? Where is, and what would happen if you weren't able to do that? Right. That, that thing, whatever it. it is, right. That's- if you weren't able to get that fill or if you're, if you're running, right. If you're trying to run a three hour marathon and you're running through injuries and pain and your doctors and your friends are telling you to stop, 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 rest, rest, rest. And you're still not listening to that advice. Then you're being fueled. Chances are you're being fueled by a trauma response somewhere. doesn't have to be like you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, all about beatings and abuse, that kind of trauma. It, it could be something no. you could, you try well, to prove and it yourself. Means your emotions. It means your emotions are actually in charge of you and you're not in charge of your mm-hmm. emotions. So as much as you think you're controlling everything around you, you're actually completely out of control. Right. Like my nervous, my internal vibration was so tense that if you flicked it, it would almost break. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, because I'm not a Western medicine fan, I went to a homeopathy doctor while waiting for all the referrals to chemo and all that. Yeah. And I remember her saying this to me, Dawn, she said, we did our big intake. I don't even know her. Did a big intake, blah, blah, blah. And she says to me, until you get the energy corrected with yeah. your childhood, your breast cancer will come back. And I was horrified. I was like, why would you say that? Why would you tell me my <laughs> breast cancer is coming? Like, what kind of... Pro- Do you know who I am? I like, what kind of professional says that? And so she goes, I said, <laughs> and so I was offended. How dare you? And then she goes, no, you need to, you need to deal with the energy with which this trauma created and I said like I need therapy and she said no you need to change the energy and I thought oh my god she's a flake I don't understand her I understand her now no it's huge thank you for being so vulnerable with us today Kim and diving into it and your drug of choice because it is we live in a world where all of those things that were they were your heroin they were your meth they were your alcohol they were right those things are so celebrated so celebrated. They are so celebrated and they shouldn't be, right? Nothing about those should be celebrated. Yeah. So I hope that someone listening to this like sees themselves in reach that. Out, yeah. Whether to it's myself, a therapist, a psychologist, Kim, whoever is, reach out and maybe start getting curious about that and digging into yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you for having the conversation. I know that this is <laughs> a heavy, but good topic, right? Like the topics that need to be talked about. It's the whole point of this podcast. We're going to end with some just like silly rapid fire questions just to get to know you on a different level and have some fun. These ones always throw me. I'm always good for the big, (laughs) heavy, like share my soul, but the lighthearted ones, I'm like, "Ah!" (laughs) right. What is something you spend a silly amount of money on? Coffee coffee we were we talked about this before we started recording that you are like the bougie coffee drinker we do um yes coffee i would say coffee and hand cream oh i like Mm -hmm. it what is your secret guilty pleasure way to decompress this is gonna sound silly but it's hypno breath work yeah it is uh, i'm actually taking my certification coming up because it has been a game changer okay we should talk Do you have a, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in recent memory? I'm like looking around. I'm like, Oh, I know this is going to sound weird. The Archie flip-flops. Archie flip-flops. Archie flip-flops. Nice. (laughs) And what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I am horribly addicted to flossing my teeth. Okay, that is awesome. <laughs> like, like how many times a day? Like, I can't even count. Probably ten times a day. Like every time uh, after every time I'm eating. Uh, sometimes when I'm just sitting around, to the point. Okay, there's two funny stories. One of them is we used to have this tiny little chihuahua, and one day my husband came home, and the dental floss was hanging out of the chihuahua's ass. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's like, you're going to kill the dog with your gender cloth. <laughs> and then the other one was, we, oh, awesome. we had, we're having this big party. Like there was like 30 or 40 people in the house and I had to floss my yeah. teeth. I had finished eating. I had to floss my teeth. I walk, I go into the pantry. Okay. I get my dental floss. I go into the pantry and I'm like flossing my teeth in the pantry. And one of my guests opens the door and sees me. And I'm like, you're at, she, she was hysterical. She still to this day will message me every year around the time and say, remember that time I caught you flossing your teeth like you were a crack addict? (laughs) (laughs) I can floss my teeth in public in a restaurant and you wouldn't even know. So it's flossing my teeth. (laughs) I love I love, I love, I love that you still have these like crazy obsessive <laughs> behaviors. Yeah. And we all yeah. do, right? Like it's such a trauma response thing to have these weird control things. Yeah, mine is flossing my teeth. I'm just really proud of you that it's you. no longer your your hit. Right? And instead it's your thing, it's like your floss. Yeah, it's my floss. It's a little bit healthier. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so much for the conversation. Please check out the show notes. We, you can find all the different ways to get a hold of Miss Kimberly and how to find out about her, her business, follow her on all of her social media and everywhere else that she's hanging out. And please check back because we're going to have another amazing episode in two weeks. Talk to you guys later. Thank you so much for hanging out with Kim and I today. I hope that you have a few amazing takeaways and are around again in two weeks for our next episode. Check out the show notes located at thetaylorway.ca for your free fun download. I promise it's worth it. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you love the show, it would mean the world to me if you'd leave a rating and review. Talk to you guys soon.